I'm Rob Dietz. I'm Cher Miller. And I'm Jason Bradford. Welcome to Crazy Town, where the circular economy is burning coal, capturing the carbon dioxide from it, and turning it into gasoline. Hi, this is Crazy Town producer Melody Allison. Thanks for listening. Here in Season 5, we're exploring false prophets and the dangerous messages they're so intent on spreading. If you like what you're hearing, please let some friends know about this episode or the podcast in general. Quick warning, sometimes this podcast uses swear words. Language! Now, on to the show. Guys, I um I shared with you my my statistics for the month of April. We're in April right now. This is April 14th when we're recording this show, and that's important. And that's important because I am now at uh, what is what does my statistics say? How many bird species have I seen this month? Oh, for crying out, cryings! We're talking about birds again. Yep. Okay. Well, I like birds. So, uh, let, w- w- how many different kinds of species? How many or? different species have I seen so far this month? We're 14 days, or about halfway through the month. As you can see here, I've given you the spreadsheet. I'm oh, at 78. I would say 78. 78, exactly. Uh-huh. Okay. You've seen so, 78 new species this month. Well, no, this is not new to my life. I've seen one new life lister. I, I got Virginia rail, but that's the only new thing for my life. But my goal is every month to see 100 species of birds. Got it. Okay. And why is that a so goal? So you're halfway through the month. <laughs> yes. And you're more right. than three quarters of the way to I'm, your goal. Exactly. So I guess Congrats, I have... dude. That's thank awesome. you. So I want... Wow, you're, you're so like playing along with them. That's really nice. You're playing along. I'm like ready to be like, what the hell are we talking... You don't give kudos to your little uh, kids when they like, come home with the like, goal? a smiley face? Why on? is that a goal? Why a hundred birds a month? Where'd well, you come up with that? I just came up because it's a nice cool and a big number, but not super big. Right. So this is a little bit of story about like setting goals and... <laughs> And making sure those goals are maybe like realistic to some extent. Sure. So I want you to try to think through if I have a realistic goal. Do you think I'm going to meet my target? Do you think I'm going to fall short? Do you think I'm going to exceed it by a lot? Given what you see, the statistics. Like, well, you said the time of year is important. So maybe maybe there's migration, some new birds coming through. Maybe that'll help you get there. I think that will help. I'm going to get... Yeah, that's true. This... This time of year, the maybe gross, my wife saw an evening gross beak today. I haven't seen one yet this month. Um, what was that called? Evening gross beak. Okay, that's but, an awesome but, name. A gross but you beak. can, <laughs> but you see my how my cumulative species. I, it looks start? like it's going down, dude. Like, yes, there's a diminishing return happening. So yeah, in my first four days, I got 45 species. Nice. In my next four days, I was up to 65 species. So by day eight, I was at 65. But by day 12, I was at 73, and now I'm at 78. So it is getting harder for me to encounter new species. Sort of like podcast listeners that way, right? (laughs) Yeah. Diminishing returns. Yeah. First first episode, we had millions. Second episode, (laughs) it was down to the three who are now listening, which is just us. Yeah. But what do you think? Do you think it's reasonable I'll get 100? Sounds reasonable. Yeah, I mean it's three digits. You're you're doing these two digit numbers, but you're talking about one zero zero. One zero zero. I don't know. I think on the on the trend that you're talking about, I think you, you might be, you might come in a little short. It's it, it it's a push. Okay, I tell you, last month I got one hundred and one. Okay. Well, wait, wait, wait. So, not to get all over the place here, but are you sticking in this eco region, or are you allowed to travel? Okay, so that's key. I went to the coast and got like 15 new ones that I could. So Cheater! I, no, that's the thing. So that's key. 
I may need to go to the coast to get to. Are get you going to do that? You're going to cheat. It's not a cheater. It's just not that. <laughs> far. If you go, ju- if you go to the coast just for that, that's cheating. Well, I mean, I'll enjoy a beach walk. And yeah, stuff like that's that. not the reason you're going. I know. But you. the spring migrants are coming in, so this is important. Like, what Which am I migrants? Gonna, are you talking spring about? migrants? Like oh, the being bird goes. species. Yes, the song. Okay. Right. So this is an important understand. Like, you know, how much am I going to change my lifestyle? How much effort am I going to put in? Right. You don't do a simple extrapolation. Understand that there's diminishing returns on your effort. So I, I think I'm just trying to give you an idea that that there's a lot of issues that actually are are valid. There, there's good reasons for me to talk about my birding. Is I, what I'm saying. I think that um <laughs> I think I know what's going on here. I think Jason has looked at like popularity of podcasts and realized that there's like a lot of birding uh, podcasts that are right. really popular, and he's. Decided that he's actually going to hijack our podcast yeah. and make it about birds. Rebranded Bird Town coming to you from because, the farm. Like our listeners are like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Yeah, get, what's the what's, what's the, the deal point? With this diminishing okay, return stuff? okay. I, I'm trying to get at the point that when we're talking about something like birding, it's not that hard to set realistic goals and to talk about it normally, and maybe and and, and it's not too heated a conversation, like. Uh, we can understand each I've other. I've seen some crazy birders <laughs> throwdowns. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah I'm going to see 400,000 species by the end of the day. That's my goal. I, I'm not that? trying to do a big year or something like that and destroy my life. Okay. I'm just like mostly hanging around here looking at birds and accumulating. Now, the problem becomes this is what gets into our episode today is that. It's really hard to talk rationally and set appropriate goals for things that are really big and really important that have major consequences for society. And that's part of why we're in crazy town, I think. Hmm. If we can only deal with this like we like I've just and you we've all dealt with my birding escapades, we could we could be we could have a reasonable conversation. We could set realistic goals, we have realistic expectations. And the stakes aren't that high. And the stakes, you know, yeah, exactly. So I'll tell that to Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> The birds are coming for you, Jason. Just wait. Okay. This is why we've been working very hard, Rob, since the days of that film, to eradicate the biodiversity of yes. bird populations yes. and other species. A lot of birds have recovered okay. in North America since then. It's a bird-eat-bird world, Jason. <laughs> I feel safe out there. Don't worry, guys. All right. All right. So we're going to do something pretty unusual today, though. We're going to cover two people in one show. You know, they're different, but... They represent kind of the yin and yang of of climate mitigation, and hmm. and I consider them to be the same species of false prophets. Okay. Yes. So you're saying we're we're doing two today? Yes. It's like a two headed dog from Greek mythology or something. Like yeah, uh, what's, what's that, that called? What's that name? Orthros. Yeah. It's a two headed yeah. serpent tailed dog which guarded the fabulous red cattle of Gurion on the <laughs> island of Erythia. <laughs> So, I know that story. Uh, out here on the farm where the red cattle are roaming, we've got we've got today's two-headed false prophet. It's a guard dog. All right, so who's our first one, Rob? Mark Jacobson. All right. Come on down. You're the next contestant on Crazy Town. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to I'm going to like run- looking for the exits. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to run you all know that I want to be a game show host. For, that's like the best job ever, right? Mark Jacobson. Step on up. Vanna, tell him what he's won. <laughs> the condescension of three guys sitting in their <laughs> in their studio. And a consolation prize of turtle wax. Okay, so Jacobson is a guy, he's in his 50s, he's from California. He has been concerned about air pollution since he was growing up. Jason, you'll love this. He played tennis. Yep. 
And he did so in bad air. I understand. I, it, I did so in bad air, too, in the yeah, 80s. Bummed him out. Uh-huh. So he goes on to have this uh, academic career at Stanford and UCLA, uh, where he takes courses in engineering, economics, atmospheric science. And now he's on the faculty at Stanford. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering. Super impressive. Publications out the wazoo. Mm. He's won Tons of awards, testified before Congress, gets uh, on on TV programs. He was actually, before Letterman ended his run, David yeah. Letterman show, he got on there. Mm. So yeah, pretty big deal. And then in 2011, he co-founds this group called The Solutions Project. Mm. It's a nonprofit. He that- did that with the Incredible Hulk. You know that, right? <laughs> Mark Ruffalo. Oh, okay. <laughs> the actor. You should have known immediately who I was know. talking about, Rob. Well, the problem is... Uh, my pop culture goes back far oh, enough. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. Bill Bixby or Lou, Lou Ferrigno. Lou Ferrigno. Lou Ferrigno. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, that was awesome. <laughs> Painted green. Yeah. It was so great. Uh, so, yeah, the Solutions Project is kind of this nonprofit that takes science, business, culture to try to educate the public about how to get to, quote unquote, science-based, 100% clean energy. They're, and their tra- website is so slick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. they but they want roadmaps for how we get the, the renewable energy economy that we need. And the guy, uh, at least on some level, tries to walk the talk. He lives in this house that's got all the finest features of, of energy efficiency and modernization, designed and built this net zero home. And it's been written about. In fact, this uh, writer, Nicole Jewell, writes for a website called Inhabitat, says that the structure is the epitome of future efficient home design that doesn't sacrifice on style or comfort. Man. So living the life, our, uh, our, the first head of our two-headed dog. I wonder if he's got a recording studio in his library like we have, <laughs> we have here. Yeah, he's going to get one now uh-huh. after he listens to this. All right, let's talk about our next guy, the second head, right? Yeah. His name is David Keith. But can his- I can I interrupt for a yeah. sec? Just don't confuse him with Keith David, the awesome actor who is in all these great movies like uh, They Live. How do you know they're not the same person? <laughs> they well, Live. They, they could be. Is that a they horror movie? Sort of. It's a John Carpenter. It's yeah. actually an anti-consumer movie. Oh, okay. Thank you. I'll well, watch that. Mm, uh, not the same guy then. Um, so David <laughs> Keith, born in Wisconsin. His dad is a British guy who worked for the Canadian Wildlife Service as a field biologist. So... Dude's got three citizenships. That's pretty good. That's Not pretty cool. Try citizenships. Yeah, I could have three. Really? But I'd have to jump through some hoops nice. with the Dutch government. He's avid outdoor explorer in the Arctic, cross-country skiing, rock climbing enthusiast. Got a lot in common with you, Rob. You yeah, I want to hang with there. him. That sounds fun. He's a birder, so he's got a lot uh, in common with you, Jason. Uh, wow. He's also in his 50s, we got so one, one guy, of us. One guy's a tennis player and one guy's a birder. That's yeah. what I do when does I'm not he, recording uh, podcasts. Does he like the Grateful Dead? Is no, he I don't know. <laughs> we should find out. That's the first question I'll ask him. So he started out as an experimental physicist with a doctor from MIT. He made a switch to climate change research, did some really important work on atmospheric physics, eventually landed at Harvard University. Harvard, Harvard. as we like mm. to call it. He, uh, he founded a company in 2009 called Carbon Engineering, which we'll get into later. He's gotten a lot of funding from Bill Gates, who we have talked about mm-hmm. on this very podcast. Helped him go mainstream. We'll also talk about that a little bit. He prides himself on his professional ethics. I'll give this guy some kudos for that. When he was at the University of Calgary, which is where he started, you know, the heart of the beast, if you're talking about the oil industry, especially in Canada, he called out the fossil fuel companies and the government there for their position on climate change. 
And because he does have this this company has a lot of business interests, he doesn't seek grant funding, get, doesn't get any grant funding for his academic work on carbon capture research. So he tries to keep these sort of things nice. separated. Dude has also won a lot of awards and accolades, including Time Hero of the Environment in 2009. Oh my gosh. We got, so we got a guy from, from Harvard. We got a guy from Stanford. And they are just like awarded to the hilt, right? Yeah. Okay. But wait a second. I don't think any of these guys probably has received the um, the the 2014 Good Steward of the Planet Award from the Corvallis <laughs> Chamber of Commerce like I have, right? I, they are jealous. I, I love sure. how our town awarded you Steward of the Planet. Yes, uh, they have the authority yeah. uh, to look over the planet. And it was the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber that did of it. Commerce. I know. <laughs> I, I got the plaque right up there. You guys can look at it. Well, so, sorry, you know, I don't mean to mock. No, it's shiny. amazing. I'm jealous. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. So. I think we made our point. These guys are They're famous, better than us. more famous than we are in so many ways. All right, here we go. Let's talk about their ideas, though, okay? This is about their ideas. Yeah. We'll start with Jacobson. His big idea is to electrify almost all the work done in the economy. And a little, a little, bit the ex, little rest with hydrogen. This ends up being a massive substitution of all the fossil fuel and nuclear with basically wind turbines, photovoltaics, and hydroelectric plants. Uh, a few other things, minor stuff. Which, um, which sounds okay to me. Yeah. He calls it WWS for wind, water, and sunlight. And his goal is to maintain business as usual services. Okay. Now it sounds a little less good. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this is going to come with a lot of new grid infrastructure, massive new transmission lines, transformers, or interconnections between disparate sections of the grid so energy can flow across continents. And the modeling for this on the global scale expects nations to share the grid within these 24 major global regions. They basically are arguing that even though this is adding a lot of work to the grid, that the grid normally doesn't do this stuff right now, all of this. Right now, the grid is only doing about 25% of our energy that we consume is is coming from the electricity sector mm-hmm. directly. But because electricity is, you know, more efficient and doing a lot of mechanical work, they think that our total energy use in the model actually goes down, about 60% down compared to today's Because there's a lot less waste. A lot less heat waste, for right. example, on the system. So that's the argument they make and the, the, the big vision, electrify it all. So basically, it's we're going to electrify everything, transportation, manufacturing processes, yep. obviously all heating, heating and cooling, all that stuff, yeah. right? Like, um, So everything gets electrified. You're, you will not have a gas stove nope. anymore, gas that's furnace, why those are bad none of right that now, stuff. Yeah. You know. Right. Okay. Of course, when you have a system like this and you have intermittency, which we've talked about with with renewable energy sources, you need a lot of storage, right? So you need batteries, other storage devices, so that, you know, if the sun's not shining, you know, wind isn't blowing, there's still, you know, electricity available for people to use. Also, a lot of talk of, like, district heating, comprehensive district heating is implemented, you know, with ground storage. So what is it with ground storage? It's basically like you're capturing a lot of of the heat and you're heating up water through the process of doing that. It's basically like an enclosed system. All right. So Um, it's almost like a a big radiator system and you can can pull the heat back. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So here, Jacobson basically argues that we have all the technology we need right now. We don't need any miracle, new technologies to be developed. As Jason, you pointed out, he actually thinks that we've got enough capacity and potential with WWS the way he talks about it, that we don't even need nuclear power. We can fully transition and we could do it very quickly. 
it will save us a ton of money, right? Because there's going to be more efficiency gains and electricity will be a lot cheaper. And he th- thinks that we can ramp this up really quickly. We can get to 80 to 85% by 2035, just a dozen years from now, 100% by 2050, which, you know, is essentially consistent with what people are saying is required, you know, in order to, to address uh, and climate And consistent overshoot. with what Jason's getting with the birds. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, there are some, you, you talked about there's some edges, Jason, in, in some of the, 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 the plans that are being put out. Like, when you get to questions around, well, how will airplanes fly? You know, mm-hmm. batteries is is really difficult thing to do on a long-haul yeah, flight. You can't right? do it. Yeah. So there's talk of, like, hydrogen-fueled, cryogenic hydrogen, you yeah. know, to fuel airplanes. So Massive underground thermal energy. cryogenically frozen or what? No, not the passengers, I don't think. <laughs> so there is, you know, he says there isn't any miracle technology needed, but there is a little yeah, bit of stuff yeah. there, right? No. That's like, uh, yeah, this will, you know, he says this will work out, right? Well, I, I want to bring in the economics of this as I've been accused of being a false economist. And the, <laughs> the the other thing is, you know, this is kind of Green New Deal-ish, right? It's, it's win-win, promises a lot of new jobs. So, you know, every state, every country, every locality that's rolling out the grand electrification scheme is going to have all these new jobs. And then, of course, getting back to his tennis playing days, Jacobson's maybe motivation for getting involved is health improvements. You'll have a lot less air pollution. I wonder how good he is at tennis. <laughs> Better than you. I don't think so. But then also, his research group plans to roll out these transitions. Uh, they've, they've done the road mapping, the planning for all the world and covered almost... Uh, almost everywhere, uh, there's a few missing nations. I mean, Chad. they've done like every state in the U.S. Yeah. They've done the U.S. as a whole. They've done a bunch of countries. Yeah, I, I give them credit for... They for like a, to do their plans. Yeah, they, yeah. they got busy with it. I don't uh, know. I mean, he's a lot taller than me. Maybe he's got a bigger serve. <laughs> just Jason's let it like go. stuck somewhere Let else. it go. You're a better birder than he is, okay? <laughs> okay, thank you. I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> God, competition, man. Yeah, and I mean, he the plans have really good graphics, nice breakdown, looks all good, and you know, economic metrics and all that. So that's that's the big idea. It's an economic and green win, 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 baby. Let's, let's transition. <laughs> a lot of wind in the plan. That's all right. Speaking of wins, yeah, to tell us about David Keith. Okay, so basically, Keith has got two big ideas, right? The first one is to suck carbon dioxide out of the air using what's called direct air capture, or DAC for short. And the second is solar geoengineering, okay? So we're going to start with direct air capture. Basically, what these are is it's industrial plants located anywhere because carbon dioxide is all over the planet, yeah, right? Nice, well mixed, well mixed in the atmosphere. Um, and what these plants do is they scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, okay? So some people may have heard of something else called carbon capture and sequestration, which is typically the, the idea is to capture carbon basically at the point of emission, right? So yeah, you take coal. a coal fire power plant, for example, right? And you put scrubbers on there, you capture the carbon dioxide from that. That's that's CCS. Well, the fossil fuel companies don't like that so much. They like, they like the direct air capture instead because when you do CCS on plants, and we could have a whole conversation about them and how effective they are and how many of these things have failed and have cost overruns, they're expensive, yeah. right? They're expensive to do and they actually make electricity prices higher. So you could see a lot of the fossil fuel companies, sort of the industry pushing DAC instead because basically they don't have to bear don't the do cost anything. of that. Yeah, right? yeah. Don't yeah. make us clean up. Even though, and we'll get to this later, it actually uses even more energy right. 
to do the direct air capture than you would do it. But it's a, perfect. You just put a DAC factory anywhere you want. It has nothing to do with the, the power generating. Right. Anywhere you want to put plant. it, you could put it. And the other thing that, that, that Keith likes about direct air capture is that it can handle what they call legacy emissions. So with the stuff not that, admissions, not legacy admissions. Oh no, that's emissions. like that's like college admissions. I'm thinking. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, e- oh, I thought it was going to handle all the rich kids that get to go yeah. to their parents. Right. See, like, yeah, Mark Jacobs. Oh, that would been awesome. Went to Stanford, <laughs> uh, and David no. Keith's dad went to Harvard or whatever. <laughs> legacy <laughs> emissions. Oh, legacy emissions. Okay. Yeah. Got so it. basically, you know, from 1750 to today, there's been about a thousand billion tons. All right. Which, oh, I could totally imagine that's that. That's a trillion tons. <laughs> okay. A trillion tons. Uh-huh. And every year right now, we're releasing about 37 billion tons. But the idea is, is that, and they, they talk about this at the, at the Carbon Engineering website, that their goal is about scale. They're focused on, on, a, on a, quote, global deployment of megaton scale direct air capture technology. So it can have the greatest impact on the huge climate challenge. Our team and partners around the world are working to deploy direct air capture facilities that can capture 1 million tons of carbon dioxide per year each. Okay, so I just want to put that in perspective. Okay, so they said a million tons of CO2 per year. Per plant. Per right plant. now they have a pilot plant that can do one ton a day. And they're that's trying to not a, not a lot. That's they're, not a million. No, but they have you know <laughs> these plans and they have modeling for scaling up to a million tons per year. Of course, that's not a lot relative to either legacy. We'll get into this more, but right. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, so to, let's be fair, right? Keith himself isn't proposing that DAC plants like capture all of the annual emissions that we're right. putting out. But we should understand the scale of the challenge, right? right. So you if you if they're even able to ramp up these plants so that they can get to a million mm-hmm. tons a year, it would require thirty seven thousand of these plants operating full time just to capture the emissions that we put out every year. Right. That's the new emissions, right? Yeah. So legacy emissions are twenty seven times larger than that. Yeah. That's the scale of of the challenge that we're talking about here. Yeah. And just to bring this into the real world a little. I, I don't want to just pretend like there's some magic factory, you know, with a giant scrub brush that uh, somehow scrubs CO2 out of the air. So let's <laughs> let's just describe really briefly in, in the kind of simplistic terms that even I can understand what's, yeah, yeah, let's, what's you, going why you, why on here. Why don't you talk so, to yourself like you're a five-year-old? Right. <laughs> As I always do. There's a big building. <laughs> so uh, there's actually a big fan is what it yeah. is. Big fan. So, <laughs> So these giant fans, they push air over a surface that's that's coated with a reagent that grabs carbon dioxide. You like that word, reagent? I do like that yeah, word. Yeah, it's a good one. So the chemical stew then gets concentrated and purified and turned into pellets. You like mm-hmm. that word, pellets? Yeah, that's easy. Carbon dioxide pellets? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, well, sort of. It's kind of a rock with carbon dioxide, a pellet, yeah. yeah. And then these pellets get superheated to then release pure CO2 into a gas form. Cool. And the pellets without the CO2 are then further processed and, and they can be recycled into, into a form used to capture more CO2. So there's some recyclability there. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's basically a chemically intensive procedures with, with fans blowing the air uh, to, into, the, into the chemical vats. Right. Okay. So like I was just saying before, he doesn't believe that DAC plants are going to need to capture 100% of annual energy emissions. He, he knows that we need to massively reduce emissions. 
he doesn't want the technology to come across as an excuse to do nothing, right, mm-hmm. about our fossil fuel dependency. But, you know, as we'll get into later, it kind of seems like there might be some greenwashing with this tech. There's what he wants and there's what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, let's, let's turn to then his second big idea, solar geoengineering. That's a general term, but his favorite technology to perform what's called solar geoengineering. This is us going to the moon, to the sun, yes. right? And and doing something Throwing with the water sun? on it to cool it oh, down. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's solar geoengineering. Yeah. Uh-huh. A billion squirt guns aimed at the sun. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, what what the idea here is inject sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere, which is what's known as a kind of solar radiation management. And it's essentially they talk about a fleet of about 100 aircraft not that many if you think about the fleet of aircraft, yeah. injecting less than 2 million tons of sulfur per year into the stratosphere. And that would reflect away sunlight and cool the planet by a degree Celsius. So aren't we already doing this? Isn't it what the chemtrails thing is? <laughs> well, we, we're not oh, gonna, that's the mind control f- stuff. <laughs> we're not talking about chemtrails on this podcast. We'd be way more popular if we did. <laughs> but we're, well, we're mentioning, let's do hashtag chemtrails when we get the show out and we'll get some listeners. Oh, great. Um, so, but here's, I want to... Uh, there, there is a lot of sulfur going into the atmosphere now through current commercial flights. I think what what would happen right. is it just this would just direct it evenly. And actually, we've seen so when nine eleven happened, right. airplanes were grounded all over the world for a few days. They actually saw the effect of that, yeah, because they they could actually see a temperature rise, right, when all those planes landed, and we're which clean- is why you and I and everyone <laughs> listening should be flying. All the time. Right? Well, there, you know, bunker fuel that's been used in the shipping industry yeah. is being cleaned up. And so there's a lot less sulfur oh, pollution happening. Yeah. And actually, one of the one of the thoughts is that the oceans are getting hotter faster because we've actually cleaned up bunker fuels. Anyway. Well, well the, those do-gooders. The idea <laughs> for this solar geoengineering and firing a bunch of sulfur in the air actually has basis in nature, right? Yeah. I mean, volcanoes yeah. do this. When, when Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991... It spewed 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, and that actually, at least as far as the scientists can tell, pushed global temperatures down by uh, half a degree Celsius or one degree Fahrenheit for the next couple of years. Yeah. So that there's some real-world experience with this. I remember wearing a sweater all 90, 92 and 93. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Jimmy Carter would be proud of you. So, you know, there's all, been all this buzz about, like, blowing up pipelines, right? Yeah. To, like, you know, stop emissions or, or whatever. Yeah. Why don't we just blow up volcanoes? It seems like a much better <laughs> how do you do? Of how do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. Did you see Joe, Joe versus Volcano, isn't that? Well, so there's one what? movie you found that I have not seen. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> There's a movie called Joe versus Volcano. Yeah, Tom Hanks. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I gotta look that one up. It's a documentary <laughs> about this. <laughs> well, so something that's interesting to me about David Keith is that he he actually seems to get a lot of things right, uh, and I wanted to go over a few of those because I know it's a false prophet season, but we've got to give credit where credits due. In a in a 2021 New York Times op ed, Keith wrote that zeroing out emissions will not cool the planet. Right, so if we quit burning fossil fuels, we're we're not doing the job. So you know, because if we're going to eliminate, even if we eliminate all the emissions by 2050, the warming effects aren't going to disappear from those legacy emissions that you talked about, Jason. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time for the greenhouse gases to to dissipate out of the atmosphere. Thousands of years. Yeah. yeah. Right. And another thing that Keith argues is that 
Carbon removal from the atmosphere is a relatively slow and expensive way to cool the planet. So he's not doing a good job with that of selling DAC, right? right? right. <laughs> Even though he's for it. Yeah. But, you know, the comparison with geoengineering is it's, it's cheap and fast by comparison. Uh, and he's right about that. And then another thing in a 2021 Science Policy Forum paper, he and 20 co-authors, that's a lot of co-authors. Hey, that's a lot. I've never written anything with 20 other people. But uh, anyway, they explain that the direct cost estimates for solar geoengineering are about $5 billion per year, two to three orders of magnitude less than the estimated costs of the damage that would be caused by climate change mm-hmm. and a lot less than the direct costs of, of other emission reduction strategies. So, yeah. uh, and it's also way, way energetically cheaper. What'd you say? A hundred airplanes to right. spread the sulfur. I mean, yeah. compare that to however many of these factories you need. Right. He totally, I mean, this, you know, remember the, the Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson book, Ministry for the Future. Future, right. They have a scenario where this yeah. starts going, but it's kind of rogue, you know, India does it or whatever. Well, you know? and that gets, uh, so there's a lot of controversy around geoengineering, right? Different forms of geoengineering. Oh, we'll have some critiques. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe we'll get into a little bit. They do try to address, Keith has tried to address some of the concerns around governance and basically free drivers. Those are people who are deploying this unilaterally. In fact, I think there was a case of of someone sort of like amateur yeah. trying to do this, like recently, with, yeah, with a hot air balloon or yeah. something like that. Yeah, it's an insignificant amount, but it all made the a uh, all the gender reveal parties for kids, they're actually embedding sulfur, sulfur in those <laughs> things now. So it's a, it's everywhere. Oh they're trying God. to do this on the download. Yeah. Right? Okay. <laughs> so you know they they've tried to propose some pathways of governance, mutual restraint agreements that are like similar to arms control agreements or treaties that people have where countries can pursue R&D of geoengineering, but they agree not to unilaterally deploy it. Uh, color me a little skeptical about all that stuff, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll get That's the argument. When has an international agreement not worked? Name one example. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's summarize this. We got, we got two guys. We got one guy on the West Coast representing West Coast Stanford. In this and, corner? And one representing the East Coast for Harvard. And there's three ideas. And think of these as like, three legs of a stool to deal with climate change. You've got the alternative energy path, that leg by electrification of everything and weaning from fossil fuels really fast. You've got this other leg, which is the carbon capture to clean up our legacy of hydrocarbon burning. And then you've got the third leg, which is the solar radiation management to keep Earth from overheating given the greenhouse effect. I have to say, if they listen to this, they probably wouldn't be happy that we're lumping the two of them together because mm. they to us, there's a lot of commonality, which we'll get into, but they don't actually, from what we could see, don't like each other's ideas that much. Yeah, they may um, like each other. We don't know that, but, right. but they, they but criticize. But they don't see themselves on right. the same page about things, right. right? So, like, you know, Keith thinks Jacobson's energy modeling is unrealistic, you know, maybe it's erroneous on some level. Doesn't think that we can wean ourselves from fossil fuels with PV and wind as fast as as Jacobson is is projecting. Hence, why we need you know carbon capture and and solar geoengineering. Keith is an eco modernist. He signed on to the eco modernist manifesto. He wants to keep nukes for base load. You know, Jacobson is is anti nuke. 
Jacobson thinks that investing in in Keith's technologies is a waste of resources. It's a diversion might lead us to be apathetic. Do you know what I mean? In terms mm-hmm. of like rapid transition of, of our energy system. We're going to be going green and clean super fast. So we don't need any of that. Man, crap. for two heads of the false prophet dog here, I really agree with their claims about the other one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now... I get to put them all together in the same species. Let's go through the typology. How would you like to hang out with a share, Rob, and Jason? Well, your chance is coming up at the fourth annual Crazy Town Hall. The Town Hall is our most fun event of the year, where you can ask questions, play games, get insider information on the podcast, and share plenty of laughs. It's a special online event for the most dedicated crazy townies out there. And it's coming up on June 6th, 2023, from 10 to 11.15 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time. To get an invite, make a donation of any size. Go to postcarbon.org slash support crazy town. When you make a donation, we'll email you an exclusive link to join the crazy town hall. If we get enough donations, maybe we can finally hire some decent hosts. Join us at the Crazy Town Hall on June 6th, 2023. Again, to get your invitation, go to postcarbon.org slash support crazy town. So guys, it's been a really good day for me for a few reasons. I mean, it's good to see you guys. Good to have you over. Oh. That's so nice. Yeah. The other thing no is, comment. the other thing is, I went outside to bird this morning to get something in, and I got a purple finch, which was the new species for the month. And I've only seen that species a handful of times. Hmm. They're they're not that common. And the other thing that happened is, I got an email from a listener, Laura. I won't reveal her full identity because she probably doesn't want people to know so much about, yeah, it, about no, it's it. A, it's a shameful thing listening yeah. to this podcast. But she emailed to to appreciate the dichotomous key. In, in the taxonomic treatment, mm-hmm. and to say that she understands when I talk about cladistics, she knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I was I was just holding out, hoping that the word cladistics was going to come up in this podcast. So cladistics? I, cladistics. I can, cladistics. I can leave a happy man now. And it's beautiful out. Look at that. It yeah. is beautiful. Okay. So anyway, but let's back to our show. Um, <laughs> Cladistically so, speaking. Yeah. So this species, this these guys key out directly. And Jacobson is the type specimen, actually, hmm. of this species. By type specimen, you mean he's like he's like the poster boy, right? You have to yeah. you have to link sort of an individual to the species concept, right? And so, in case the concept changes, you can at least, at least apply certain people to that. So, if we're gonna have like Ansel Adams out there, you know, taking photos or or somebody painting, you might know, as well, yeah. a representative species, it would be Mark Jacobson, yes. in front of his Tesla and his in his fancy house, yeah, or is he, and like the Sibley's Book of Birds, you know, yeah. if this was a picture of a it bird, would be a it, picture it, of, of Jacobson. Jacobson. So, so what's the species? Okay, the species is Homo multiplicitate, which uh, is a very complex Latin word, <laughs> and the nom familiar is complexa fixer. Okay. So, uh, yeah, these is, this is, these are the engineering types that you know they're they're part of this clade of sort of the the the, the ultra modernists sort of derived from the double downer species. Probably, they want to address these global scale predicaments with technologies that are fantastically difficult to manage and scale. So, you know, these are these guys are 
most you can find them mostly on like college campuses and engineering departments among many left-leaning environmental orgs. They may have found venture capital put their kooky ideas into praxis. Um, <laughs> they generally think they are the smartest guys in any room, and that's probably true. But they're also total dorks. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, it's pretty obvious who we're dealing with here and in, in this species. Okay. All right, thanks for that cladistic overload there. Appreciate that, Jason, no as problem. always. I'll talk cladistics uh, anytime you want. Yeah, I know. I know you will. Uh, all right, let's get on to the critiques of these, uh, the, the three legs of the stool. I got, I got nothing. Oh, I I'm think good. you're, I, I think that's a, the worst lie you've ever told. Because <laughs> we know there's a lot of critiques, and we, we can't even cover all of them by any stretch. If you want all of them, go read the list of scientific papers that covers it. But but we are going to cover some. So for Jacobson's idea of the all-electric future, we've broken the critique into three categories, okay? Technical, material, and sociopolitical. And since there's three of us, we, we each get to kind of right. lead one. I'm going to so. take the baton then right yeah. now. All right, technical. <laughs> Again, so many here. Um, yeah. I'm going to just list a few. There was... A real kerfuffle over this. This Christopher Clack et al. So another lot of lot of people is, in this. Is that the guy that does that that car show on in, in PR? Oh, that, that's that's Clickifer Clack. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyway, so in, in 2017, and in, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, blah blah blah, it took many issues with Jacobson. One key one that I think is rarely mentioned that is really important is that Clack et al believe that Jacobson and his colleagues don't understand how the grid requires a stable baseload that is sort of driven by what they call, quote, rotating machines with substantial inertia that is critical for frequency stability are supplanted by asynchronous wind and solar generators. And I mean, I mean how do you understand this? Think about this like, you know, when you're, when you're riding your bike and you're going fast, you're actually more stable than if you're going slow. So this is this is sort of like right. this inertia, this sort of power that's in the spin. If you take a tire and you're spinning, you try to turn it. It's hard when it's going fast. Yeah, right. It doesn't want to turn. It wants to, it's stable. I, I will say, I just got back from mountain biking. Yeah, and I, I was practicing my track stands. Okay. and I, I'm yeah. pretty good. I can, yeah. I can I can stand there on the Still, bike. So, but it's a lot of work. So maybe uh, Jacobson is Mr. right. Renewable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Clack et al. also don't believe Jacobson appreciates the difficulty of integrating large new energy sources like wind that is installed far from where it's used. And there's an amazing cost and complexity of transmissions over these vast distances that they do not believe is properly understood in Jacobson's model. Yeah, I have wondered about that. Because, you know, when you're traveling and you see like the big wind turbine farms, right. up, that it's usually a pretty remote place. Yeah, right? exactly. And so gathering all that and then funneling it through big new transmission lines and transformers and resyncing with the grid and trying to avoid losses... It just basically thinks their model really doesn't understand that and vastly... Uh, What's important for people to understand is we, we use transmission lines now to run electricity from fossil fuel power plants, for example. Right. But if one is down in an area, it doesn't mean they're all down. But when w wind is not blowing in a region, yeah, right? It's not like in one isolated area where these wind turbines aren't blowing. It's 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 typically of over a larger distance, and that's why you have to have transmission lines over vast connecting distances. vast distances, right? right. Yeah. And Much that's larger, very hard. right? Okay, 
And then many also go after Jacobson's sort of rosy picture of what are called the renewable capacity factors. And there's actually a recent paper in, again, the Proceedings of National Academy of Science that instead of using sort of modeling, brings in more real world data. So actually, what does it look like for 20 years of wind data, 20 years of PV data? And they basically say, they argue that, you know, the ratios that are often too low. So in this paper, argue that one unit of fossil fuel generation needs four units of PV to be replaced and two units of wind. And that doesn't include backup or anything like that. Right. But it's just because the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't, isn't out all the time, et cetera. Okay. So you uh, have passed the baton from the technical now to me on the materials front. And we have a reader actually at resilience.org that comments on a lot of our posts. And he's done something really cool. After he went through a lot of articles, he's coined three terms that summarize some of the problems with the Jacobson uh, electrification this is model. This J.R. Martin. J.R. Yeah. Martin. So the, the three problems that J.R. Martin comes up with, or at least that he's named, are the Michaud monkey wrench, the Heinberg pulse, and the Smill Crawl, all named after... These are uh, all bars that are uh, <laughs> right. downtown Corvallis. Right, especially... Well, no, not <laughs> the third the one. You go on the Smill Crawl to get to, to the get other to the two bars. The Pulse has a great dance floor. Yeah. So, so the Michaud Monkey Wrench. So Simon Michaud's work shows how the mining industry can't really gear up quickly enough to extract all the raw materials that are needed to do this massive build out. And there may not even be high enough quality of ores left on earth to to do what Jacob says. Right. I mean that's that's for. a big concern, right? Is do we have the, right. the minerals to, to do this? And I mean Simon Michaud argues that we're like off often by like an order of magnitude for a lot of these things. So it's not even close in many right. cases. Yeah. 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 So then the Heinberg pulse, of course, is named after our colleague and friend uh, Richard Heinberg. Mm-hmm. And he's pointed out that if you're going to do this big industrial build out of the solar wind infrastructure, you're actually going to have this huge pulse of emissions to do it because you have to use fossil fuels to build this, do all the mining and all the transporting and all the construction. So uh, they're not taking that into account either. I, I think this is such an under-recognized mm-hmm. issue when you think about it because yeah. you're talking about massive Massive ramp up of industrial processes and and consumption of of energy and raw materials to do this, on top of the what the economy is already doing. Yeah, yeah. it's it's an absurd amount, and all the mining Which would create and shipping, and a, you know, it's ridiculous. Its own emissions and yeah. other environmental impacts. Yeah, I've, I've watched uh, videos of uh, like the trucks pulling up mountainsides with the pieces of of the wind turbines, and it's just you know it's kind of crazy to see the amount of energy needed to. I mean, those things are massive. Yeah. So to move them up to wherever they're going to be, yeah, it's just emblematic of it. Okay, and then the third one is the Smill Crawl, named after Vaclav Smill, who has written a lot about how these energy transitions, they're not fast like Jacobson is proposing. They're actually really slow. They take a long time because you have so many institutions and the technical barriers and all that stuff to, Permitting to turn it over. And, yeah, land use and all, everything. Unbelievable. Right, which gets to, to the sociopolitical kind of critiques. Yes, you baton know. passed to and, a share. And if you think about it, I mean, this is sort of simple, right? Like you can model stuff out on paper, you spreadsheets, have complex spreadsheets, spreadsheets yeah. your computer models do all this stuff, and it looks fantastic, looks great. And you could do that 
for every country on earth and every state and blah, 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 right? In the real world, we're dealing with human systems, human decision makers, politics. We are not very quick, you know, in terms of transitioning those things. You see, you know, the tensions that exist and the challenges that exist to get consensus on anything, yeah. right? And policymakers on board. So to think about doing it at, at speed, and then that might be more like a localized political challenge. Uh, and all the entrenched interests and sort of the money that flows in to influence the, the political system and, and legislation, you start thinking also about integration across nations. And Yeah, the grid's supposed to be spread and managed transnationally. Yeah, right. you said 24 global regions, right. I believe. So just, just the sheer challenge, right? It's not just the technical challenge. It's not just the material challenge. It's the challenge of like the coordination of, of all that to be done rapidly and at scale. And you could say, well, we'll figure it out. But th there's another piece to it, too, which is thinking about the actual impacts of what some people are calling green colonialism, right? So... All of these renewable energy sources, whether it's, you know, supplying the, the ones that are supplying electricity or the ones that are consuming them, like electric cars with their batteries, require a lot of raw materials. Many of those things are in places around the world who have already been exploited through different forms of colonialism. And, and there's a lot that people are voicing concern around a new form of colonialism, which is basically extraction of these for a renewable energy economy and the localized environmental impacts of that, the, oh, yeah. the human costs of that. I mean, there are huge human rights violations concerns, the rights of indigenous communities over their land, a major issue that gets completely glossed over, ignored, in a sense, right. through these these plans. So, so maybe there are just a few really good critiques of, of Jacobson's stuff. Uh, and, and like I said, there's a lot more that if, you, if you're really interested, dive into the literature. But let's move on to some critiques of David Keith's two ideas. And let's start with direct air capture. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of scale uh, stuff. So even if you built a thousand of these Direct air capture factories or dactories, maybe yes. we could call them. And each uh, one's a dactery. No, dactories. Oh, and each one, each of these thousand, each one is a million, a million tons per year. Yes, CO2. yeah, a million tons. So uh, you know, that's, sounds like a lot, but that would only pull out of the air less than three percent of current emissions. Mm -hmm. So. We're nowhere near that. You know, you said right now the prototype's one ton a day. So you could yep. build one that could get 365 tons <laughs> out. It's pretty close now. to a million. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of have already pointed out that we need 37,000 DACs operating full time. And that's just to eliminate the new emissions. Legacy emissions are 27 times larger than that. So we need... An LOT of DAC. Uh, yeah. We need a lot of DAC factories. But I have the question, how much energy does yeah. each one of these suckers require? Well, let's go back. Remember, you basically went through the really kind of baby talk explanation <laughs> of the technology, which I thought was really well done, actually. Yeah, yeah thanks. There was a very, very nice summation of this four-step process, you know. Of, and it takes an incredible... There's a published paper, which is nice. They actually published a paper on their process and their technology and making the case of how scalable it is and cost-effective, blah, blah, blah. But when you look at it, it's transparent how much energy it uses. And it ends up being about 2,000 kilowatt hours per ton of carbon dioxide 
pulled out of the air. Mm. And so if you multiply that by a million tons, each one of these megaton plants would need 2 billion kilowatt hours per year. And that's the equivalent of over 188,000 U.S. homes per year. So it's each for plant, one plant for one of these plants. Right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so, and when you're, you're talking U.S. homes, we're not exactly yeah, the no. most conserving no. uh, when it comes to, to burning fuel and using electricity in our homes. Right. Yeah, and if you think about scaling it up, you're talking about one one of these plans, right? Yeah, scaling this thing up. Uh, our 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 buddies Richard Heinberg, who we just talked about, and David Fridley, who's a staff scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, they co-authored a book that we published a number, you know a few years ago called Our Renewable Future. They wrote a piece a few years ago in Renewable Energy World, doing some analysis about this plan that was published. It got a lot of media attention by Keith and Carbon Engineering. Basically laying out a, a vision for doing direct air capture, but turning it into gasoline, right? And this got a ton of attention. Okay. Well, how perfect. What, Carbon neutral that's, gasoline. That's like the circular economy. It's so beautiful. And and they did some math on, on the energy inputs required. God, right? it always falls apart when you do the math. Damn it. <laughs> Fridley is great at doing math, by the way. He's the guy I always turn to for that that kind of thing. So if you just think, you know, just do a thought exercise, right? So, and, and I'm not saying that Keith is arguing that, that they're going to do this, but if there are enough DAC plants operating to capture all the annual carbon dioxide emissions, mm-hmm. just powering the fans, right? You talked about this, like, this process, you right. know, starting with the fans. There's a lot more that goes into it oh, yeah, a lot more. after that, but just starting with the fans, right? So just powering the fans would consume nearly 60% of all... All U.S. electricity consumption, the entire <laughs> but country. But think of the nice breeze. You could probably, those fans would then power the turbines. And we got another circular economy right. going. <laughs> so that's just the fans. And then you, you go down the chain, right? The CO2 compressors, they would require twice the amount of energy that the fans would. Okay. <laughs> so now you're talking uh, like uh, that's 120% of the energy of the U.S.? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Well, we don't need energy for anything else. <laughs> or sorry, I, I said energy, but uh, electricity. electricity, yeah. yeah. Well, the current design of these DAC factories, too, it, it uses almost exclusively natural gas yes. for power and to provide the heat that it needs. So if that's the case, you're not solving the problem at all. You're running it on, on fossil fuels. Now, they're working on an all-electric process, but it's pretty tough to tell how well that's going. Yeah. Yeah. Another important point is that so far, we're just describing this process as grabbing that CO2 out of the air. Right. But none of what we've talked about in terms of energy or the machines involved are sequestering this. They're just capturing it and separating it in a pure form. So you would actually need more energy and a place to go, you know, pipelines and injection facilities to, to, to store it long term. And it's kind of weird because the other thing they keep, you know, even though this is sold as some sort of climate thing, if you look at their website, they're, they're always promoting the creation of fuel, for you know, neutral f- carbon right. neutral fuels Gasoline. like airplanes and stuff, right. and, and so there goes the storage. Like they're not even seem to be worried about the storage at this point. Maybe someday. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So let me just understand this process right now. So you take natural gas. Yeah, I take natural gas. Right. Yeah. You put it into these into a system that's powering these fans and all these other processes that consume a shit ton, a metric shit ton, excuse me, yeah. of of. <laughs> 
of energy, yeah. right? How many how many shit tons in a kiloton? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do the math on that for me. Depends on your diet, right. and uh, and then you you supposedly you, you you could take out some of this carbon dioxide, right? But then you can't store it right. in, into anything. So what do you do with it? You turn it back into fossil fuels. Like well, it's not fossil fuels. It's just fuels. Now it's just fuels. So you've taken the fossil out of the fuels. So it's better, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. yes, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, but what are they? What are they offering to do with this right now? They're talking about using it for injection, so that they could do enhanced recovery of fossil fuels. Yes, those are the two markets. Right? The main market, and now. you could, and you could fuel. Yeah. Basically, ICE engines. You yeah. could you could but fuel you, internal combustion engines, airplanes. Yeah. And, and you could cars. have exponentially growing DAC to take care of all the extra fuel you're producing. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, so that's a, a short summary of some some DAC problems. Let's move on to solar geoengineering, the third leg of that stool. Of course, governance is going to be a, a problem, and I don't really want to hammer this because we already hit it yeah. in Jacobson stuff. So same kind of issues there. One of the things that really concerns me the most is that, yeah, we have volcanoes that have cooled the temperature by throwing sulfur into the atmosphere, but there's a lot of uncertainty on how well this would work and what other side effects might might arise. And it's not well, it's not a genie you can stuff back we, in a bottle. We've talked about the precautionary principle, right? Yeah. So this this raises all the precautionary principle. F- flags and, and i think that's a lot of the people's concerns and like, globally yeah exactly. i mean you're not talking about like uh right. you know we're just going to do this over new jersey and part something. of the problem about it being so effectively cheap and easy to do like the yeah. technology exists is that people could just sort of rogue do this i think we're going to do it you know i, I, I think it's going to happen yeah because it is cheap and relatively easy and we're going to get desperate but the the scary thing for me then becomes what happens next because the main issue that makes this a tremendous hazard and ethically kind of queasy for me is what's called termination shock. And this was explained by someone with a great name, Raymond Pierre Humbert. And he's he, a, he's the lead singer of the band Termination Shock, right? He should. <laughs> it's a punk band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pierre Humbert sounds like a great cheese. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well he's a physics professor at the University of Oxford. He should be in he should be in, in Paris, but University of Oxford. <laughs> He's taking on the Harvard and Stanford guys. (laughs) Yeah. He points to a key argument against solar geoengineering, and that is typically, it's overlooked in the media coverage. So that's why I'm really highlighting it. Mm -hmm. And it's the showstopper for him. And he calls it the millennial commitment problem. I'm not talking about people born around the turn of the century. Okay. (laughs) They have problems. They have problems with commitment. Anyway, (laughs) you just swipe, you can just swipe left or right or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, this is a quote from him. Injecting particles into the stratosphere tries to offset this persistent warming by human action that needs to be continually renewed. If the particle injection were ever stopped, the particles would fall out in a year or so, and the world would suffer the full brunt of resurgent global warming in around a decade, a phenomenon called termination shock. I think this is really key. First of all, it makes me think of like paying off one credit card with another credit card. You know, it's like you're just de- you're just denying the reality. You're not facing up to the reality. Now, Keith obviously says maybe this buys us time. Right. You know, to 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 transition. But it locks us in. That's the thing, and it's the same argument with with nuclear power. Now we're going to get a bunch of emails about right. thorium and how I'm wrong about nuclear power. But one of the arguments there that I think gets lost so much is this assumption that we're going to have complex 
societies functioning to be able to maintain these things for a thousand for years. thousands <laughs> yeah, of yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, Do you know, know what I mean? And right. it's just like, have you looked at history? Do you well, know what I mean? Keith yeah. himself weighs in on this a bit, and I mentioned earlier that he comes across pretty realistic yeah. in some ways, and he's right about some some things. You know, I agree with you, Jason, that we're probably going to do this geoengineering with our backs up against the wall. And I, I think that's where Keith is coming from. But here's his take on, on moral hazard, which reveals how strongly he's stuck in this modern capitalist growth paradigm. So the quote is, he says, is there a moral hazard to battery powered cars? Because fundamentally, it's the same kind of thing as the hazard to geoengineering. He says, and the only way those cars count as moral hazards is if you really believe the right thing is just to reduce consumption. So maybe from Naomi Klein's point of view, and you really think the right thing is is to reduce consumption and show that industrial capitalism is unsustainable, then anything that gets us out of the problem is in some sense a problem. Right. I mean, so he's, he's basically saying that you cannot... You can't reduce consumption. That's a, you know, so, yeah. It's just, I mean, he's kind of making our argument for us, but then he sort of like dismisses it. Yeah, because well, I go like, he's just creating a new set of problems is the problem I have, right? This does not actually solve any fundamental problem. Well, it's it's the double downer it's thing. It's the double you, downer. You know, you talked about before. Yeah. Here's my thing about both of these guys, right? That that really gets me. It's like, not only there are assumptions about you know, the technology working and all the materials being available, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? Which is sort of like biophysical. It's really this idea that we can assume global coordinated rational action, Mm -hmm. right? And again, these guys are fucking engineers and physicists, right? So they don't probably spend a lot of their time dealing with the social sciences, right? right? right. But if you look at the fact that most of the problem here is basically a social problem, right? This is the choices that we're making, how we structure our economy. They're assuming that we're going to be rational actors. We're going to get the kind of massive government intervention we need. We would have to redirect effectively the entire global economy to do this. Like in Jacobson's case, like massive deployment. If we're trying to avoid the Heinberg pulse, which this even presumes that we have the biophysical capacity to do all this build out on top of that economy, right, Mm -hmm. as it currently stands, which I doubt we could do, you would be forced to say, oh, we actually have to ratchet down everywhere else in the economy in order to keep us from growing emissions, right, right, while we're doing this. And there's no... No discussion of that, no recognition of that, no talk about that. It's like this assumption, basically, that we're all going to act in a coordinated way. We can count on businesses and the markets to drive investments oh, into these things. All of the all the stuff that gets sold on Amazon, they're going to quit, and they're just going to start working on, on solar panels, right? Overnight. <laughs> Overnight. Overnight. Okay. We've done some pretty nice critiquing, but... Of the specifics, but let's let's sort of now move to some of the broader the broader points we have because we're we're kind of picking on these guys, but really they're emblematic of sort of a way the world is looked at and processed and considered and what's considered realistic, right? And yeah, one thing that came up for me in considering these two false prophets is that I want to be careful that we don't do the circular firing squad thing that we've talked about in the past where, you know, these guys are not Dick Cheney and and, uh, Rex... What's the name? Rex Tillerson, right. the guy that ran Exxon, no, uh, Mobile, not. and no. they play like, tennis. You know, one guy's tennis, one guy's birds. I mean, yeah. Like I think I, they're they're trying to solve the problem, 
they're just uh, <laughs> they're just wrong about how they're going about it. But it's valid to critique them. I just don't want to completely throw them under the bus. Sure, totally fair. Totally fair. That's fair. You know, something that that was really struck by you know, when we were preparing for this this episode, I, I actually went and watched that that interview that. Jacobson did on David Letterman's show. Yeah, how was that? Back in 2013. <laughs> I'll let you be the judge. You watch it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be too mean about it. But what really struck me was that sort of at the very end of, of the interview, and I, I want to play you that clip. All right. All right. Let, let's pull it up here. Do me a favor right now. Uh, if you mark, look right in the camera and tell people everything's going to be okay. Uh, everything. Everything will be okay if we collectively put our mind to it. There's no technical, technological or economic limitation to solving these problems. It's a social and political uh, issue. It primarily. sounds like that, that character in Warner Brothers with the laser. <laughs> the, the alludium Q38 explosive space no, modulator. They were appreciating. I just, thought, I, I just found it so interesting that this, like... Uh, Please look it straight into yeah, the camera yeah. and tell us everything is going to be okay. Well, I mean, that's a that's an aha from this, right? There's yeah. this hunger, a desperation that we're all going to be okay, that some technology solution exists within the current capitalist business framework that's going to just let us keep on doing what we're doing. There's There's no transformation required to the economy or the society. Thank you very much. Oh, right. Oh, and I mean, that's so good. <laughs> that, that's why I thought it made a lot of sense to, to talk about both of these guys together and, you know, maybe the, the, the yin and yang, right? Well, they're complex affixers. They're the same species. Yeah. I mean, even though they might see themselves maybe a little bit at odds with each other, you know, direct air capture and geoengineering and massive deployment of of renewables, you know, maybe they're not the same, but they really are part of that business as usual mentality, right? Yeah. And that's the amazing thing to me is they imagine that it's easier to deploy all of these, in, you know, crazy <laughs> techno interventions at scale than it would be to change the operating system of the global economy. Though, even their assumptions are basically built on a premise that we are going to change the way the global economy works, right? right because right. we're all going to be coordinated on this stuff, yeah, I know. you know, in, in order to be able to do this. So, but no, we couldn't possibly think about changing capitalism or we couldn't think about reducing consumption. It's crazy. It's crazy. This is where you get into crazy town mode again. Yeah. This is where you feel crazy. And so they, they're debating with each other which one of these we should do, right? Like, oh, don't, don't do Keith's stuff. You know, do my stuff. Oh, no, he's unrealistic. So 90% of the conversation is about their kind of stuff, their kind of debate, as opposed yeah, What technological intervention right. do we do? Right. right. As opposed to what, what we need to be talking about, and you get 10% of the conversation is about things like degrowth and massive conservation, using the word rationing in, in polite company, I, I don't think- culture shift. And, and what drives me nuts is that these IPCC models, the major institutions, of course— having to deal with this from a global perspective, they're increasingly relying on these fantastical technological fixes to keep warming, you know, what they call these uh, negative emissions technologies to keep warming below two degrees Celsius to correct for our overshoot. And, and so, yeah, it, it is it is maddening. I, I think when we, did, we when we did that episode, I think it was episode nine. They'll think of somethingism. Yes, that's right. I think we used this great comic strip 
that shows this professor and a student at a blackboard, and there's like this complex math problem right, that's right. done. Right. And then in the middle of it, then a miracle happens, yes. you know, and he's like, you're gonna have to explain this a little bit. I mean, that's what negative emissions technology, it's like, with these models, it's like, this thing is going to solve this problem for us. So we can actually try to limit warming to below two degrees or whatever. I, I forgot know. to mention that, but that was, that was episode nine, you got to go way back, they'll think yeah. of something as some and we did a lot. We did a whole episode that was focusing on negative emissions technologies. Right. In the past, yeah. Actually, it's understandable that to me, that politicians and capitalists are basically, you know, resorting to these technology fixes. I mean, that's what they do, right? Like, yeah. that those are the waters they operate in. You know, try to figure out how to make a profit of this, make it part of the free market. Don't tell people as a politician that they have to change their behavior at all, right? Mm-hmm. But I get just deeply disappointed and frustrated with with people in our shared community of concern, right? The, yeah. the, the groups that are really concerned about the climate crisis and maybe other environmental issues and, and the funders of those movements yeah. who are, again, all the conversations and the things that they're really promoting are still part of that same kind of which technological intervention are we going to do instead of right. other alternatives? And well, that's I mean, really it, frustrating. It's hard for us because we're not from Stanford and Harvard, <laughs> and we haven't gotten the same kind of accolades and all the peer review. Like You got a thing from the Corvallis I, Chamber I did of Commerce. Get that. It's true. <laughs> I, I should wave that around more often. But you can see how... How nice it would be if you're if you're from one of these groups to have a Jacobson plan that you can just point to and just rally everyone behind. Yeah. But your lament to share it it leads right back to the denial and delusion framework that we've talked about previously, and the the denial side of that is you know in the U.S. at least the right wing denies that there's even a problem at all, and yeah. why are we even talking about this? But almost more dangerous is the way the left has the delusion, the delusional view that it's going to be easy, that we'll green New Deal our way out of climate and out of biodiversity and uh, all the problems that we're facing. And I feel like those environmental NGOs and funders that you bring up, like they've got Jacobson and Keith as... There are two high priests on the delusional side of the spectrum. We had an entire episode called Denial on the Right, Delusion on the Left, or something yeah. like that, too. So yeah. we keep talking about the same stuff. Yeah, I mean, I would <laughs> I would say, you know, generally speaking, I think the enviroclimate NGOs are more in the Jacobson camp. Mm-hmm. And you have more of business interests, maybe more institutional think tanky actors who are like pro market on the Keith side. I think so. But they're basically all part of, you know, in our view, I would say part of the same area. Like basically what you said, Jason, there's common species, right? And the government and the foundation money are all going to be flowing that direction. And that's because it is easier to imagine (laughs) these technological (laughs) magical fixes than it is to imagine us changing how we orient ourselves, which is just incredible. And the deeper we get into this crisis, I mean, we had David Letterman asking Jacobson to look at the camera, tell everybody it's going to be okay. That was 10 years ago. Yeah, that was 10 years ago. As we get deeper into the teeth of all this stuff, I think we're going to see more and more of this. We're going to see more things being peddled out there as magical solutions to get people out of their state of, of trepidation, fear, anxiety, you know, and overwhelm. Because people want to be relieved of that worry and that concern. Maybe um, some of these interests can sponsor our show. That would be great. 
So, bummer. It's a bummer Yeah. to do math that's not that hard to do and <laughs> realize that what everybody is banking on, what everyone's hoping for, whatever, it's all going to fail. It's all going to fail. None of this is going to work. And yet, like I say, we were... We're or make things dramatically worse. Make things worse. Totally yeah. make things worse. Well, it, it's crazy because I... Like, I want to be on Jacobson's side. Oh, I, yeah. And I'm for solarizing and, and windifying. Yeah, you yeah you're a hypocrite, dude. You've got solar panels. I, I do. You have I uh, got solar panels. an electric car. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> he's right. We need to have a renewable energy source for, for our power. And we got to power down like mad. Right. We need the degrowth. We need the conserving. We need to power down. We, we need to figure out how to live life a bit more simply. But boy, would it be just nice to be in Jacobson's headspace where you're like, no, no, we just got to do this and everything's rosy and fine. Do that, do, do that in the voice of that. <laughs> the Illudium Q38 explosive <laughs> space modulator. But, but then say it's going to be okay. <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to punch it uh, so funny. At, at him that way. <laughs> All right, we got two guys to deal with on our sufferability index. I don't want to take too long. And there's something we got to talk about. We get up front because you think, hey, they play tennis. Jacob plays tennis. He's a birder. You know, what could be wrong? Engineer. Yeah, uh, uh, nice guys. Maybe. Trying to solve a climate Trying to crisis. solve a climate prize. It could be pretty low scoring. However, I'm a little worried about Jacobson. His, you know more about this. Why don't you mention what happened? Oh, so... Basically, we talked about the Clack et al. paper that was published, right? Yeah. And there was a lot of critique of of Jacobson's models. Well, Jacobson took took offense to that, which is fine. There's debate that happens all the time in academic literature. This is part of the process of doing science and doing, you know, studies. But he decided to sue for $10 million. Yeah. (laughs) $10 million. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't a lawsuit? He couldn't just give him a wedgie or something instead. No, no. He could have challenged him to a tennis match. But, but he, no. he lost. He lost and had to pay the legal fees or something. So no, no. The, or he withdrew it, or? it. It ended up, he had to withdraw it because it had no merit. Yeah. I mean, this is something that should be debated in an academic journal, not yeah. sued. And- so that, what you're saying, Jason, is that that, that might affect your scoring of it's him. It's going to affect bit. my score oh, okay. for sure. All right. So just, just quickly summarize for us All right, the and, scoring system. So okay, zero now. is a low score, three is a high score for these three categories of your intentions, your personality, and your ideas. And then, So this, you can get up to three points in each of those yes. three, Yes, right? and then there's okay. a bias, a score bias. You can give them an extra point. And, and higher know. score is worse. Yeah, higher score is bad. Okay, so uh, let's do Jacobson first. All right, I, well, I'm, I'm giving him... He's getting a low score in intentions. I think he has really good intentions. His personality seems kind of like a nice enough nerdy sort of dude. The ideas are decent, but then get a little out there. And, and then the score is biased for that freaking suing the dude for $10 million. Hey, I'm going to give him a, a three. Okay, that's reasonable. A three? Yeah. Pretty low. That's really low. Mm-hmm. I would go higher than that. Really? Go for it. I'm going to say a five. A five? That's pretty high. Yeah. Okay, what made you go so much higher? Well, the ideas, I think, are kind of, they're pretty high on the, I, I don't know about wackadoodlery. Right. But, yeah, I mean, waving his hand at cryogenic hydrogen, yeah, we'll just keep flying. Like, literally, just yeah. literally dismissing any concerns about air travel whatsoever. Right. You know, like, oh, yeah, we'll just figure that out. 
Okay, I think he's got a little bit of a of a, a little bit of a power trip because all the fame and stuff, and wants to be th- seeing this great guy who's solving the world's problem. But it's not he's not he's not like a, like a Jack Welsh or something like that. So give him a one. You know, the suit things, and he's got a reputation for just wearing people out by just arguing incessantly and 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 not seeing the other side well. So give him one and a half for personality ideas. I'm going to give him another one and a half. So what am I up to? That's uh, that's four. I have, it's a nice day. I said I have it's a nice day. I'm gonna stick with four. Okay. Okay. Let's let's run through Keith because I I think he's a little more realistic than Jacobson. So mm-hmm. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna blanket him a two. Yeah, I'm doing kind of compare three. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna split the difference two and a half. All right. That was quick. We gotta move through. Boom. Boom. <laughs> decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. <laughs> Probably the first and most obvious do the opposite is to refrain from engaging in wishful thinking and delusions. A, a delusional tech idea is going to come your way every day every if you day. want it to, if, yes. you're, if you're looking for them. Oh, yeah. They may even be coming from these high-credentialed Harvard, Stanford, whatever, Yale. MIT is full yeah. of them every Dave day. Dave Papress uh, releases out constantly. Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. MIT is one of the worst actors. Yeah. And just just have a lens. Uh, if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. Yeah, so beware you know, of any proposal that involves a lot of high-tech, never-done-before kind of stuff. Needs Solar to, roadways. Yes. <laughs> needs to be built out quickly at a massive industrial scale. Realize there are going to be issues with material shortages, supply chains, cost overruns, massive and ongoing maintenance and management. In a world facing limits, this likely means these will fail. Yeah, and you're going to hear lots of breathless news about technology solutions. It's not just MIT's putting out press releases. This stuff seeps out into the mainstream a lot. I remember with the proposal for direct air capture to gasoline, you know, that was got tons of attention. He's Big so write up in the Atlantic yeah. magazine, a bunch of other places, with like no critical thinking involved. Because as we've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about, there's such energy blindness, such a lack of energy yeah. literacy in the general population, let alone you know journalists trying to cover cover things. So just. Just think critically. You, you know? know, this is a little bit of an unfair comparison, but these kinds of tech, DAC to gasoline, whatever, it reminds me of those artist renderings that you sometimes send oh, yeah. around, Jason, of like a, a, a cruise ship that flies yeah, or whatever. Right, right, you know, right, like, right. Or uh, yeah. you know, just stuff like that where it's like, yeah, that's probably not going to I just happen. saw one the other day, which is, you're talking about flying cars now in cities, you know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> um, there are no flying hippos, okay? The largest birds like the albatross and, yeah. okay, never mind. I would love to ride a flying hippo. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. In the bayou. And then I'm going to give an adage, which he probably wouldn't even say this is an adage of his. I'm, I'm kind of uh, putting words in his mouth a little bit, but David Fridley, we talked about. One of my go-to guys on energy, he yep. always says, you know, I will send him things. Like, did you read about this plan or did you hear about this thing? This yeah. Just checking. Proposal. He's like, he's like anything <laughs> that I see, if it's only put in dollar terms, right. I ignore it, basically. So, like, that is, I think, generally a good rule of thumb. Jacobson is incredibly guilty of this, which is like, 
putting a dollar price on everything rather than saying this is what is going to be required from a material standpoint, energy throughput. Well, think all about all stuff. this stuff that says the cost of solar and wind is now below the cost of coal. Right. It's like, so what? In many ways. Um, So ignore financial costs only. Yeah. Make sure you're looking. If they're not talking about material inputs or energy needs, don't pay attention to it. I have have a series of adages that lens I go through. And here's here's that they are. Beware of scale is one. Most things will not scale. Okay. MIT is the worst of this. A lab breakthrough and it will never scale. Take off the energy blinders. Most of the time, they'll propose a technology. And just like we went through the DAC thing, it's just idiotic as soon as you do any energy math. Time is not on our side, okay? Most of the stuff to have any significance needs to be rolled out slowly, you know, or you know, to have any chance of working. All this high-tech stuff can't be done quickly, okay? Complexity confounds. Think about the machinery and all this process that Rob went through and how complex these, the grid thing that Jacob, that's not going to work. Complexity confounds. And then we prolong growth at our peril. So most of this stuff is about prolonging business as usual and growth, which is the wrong, it's the wrong question to be asking. It's the wrong answer to be seeking, the wrong solution set to be, to be working towards. So yeah. anyway, those are my adages. I would well, add the precautionary principle to that mm, adage. Okay, I'll add, I'll add that. I'll well, add good, that. good lenses to view the world through. And if you are using those lenses or adages or whatever you want to call them. Uh, look, you have to face that we, we need to reduce our consumption. And so that means we're going to have to embrace rationing or at least figure out how we live more simply and, and everybody's got to share in that sacrifice. And if justice is important to you, which it should be, we have to recognize that, that consumption is not equally distributed And that there are many people who are not only not responsible for the climate emissions that we've had historically, their energy consumption, their material consumption are a fraction of ours in in Western wealthy nations. And so it's on us to to reduce even more significantly. The belt tightening happens here more than anywhere else. Okay, remember that this whole term negative emissions technologies actually includes what's called nature-based solutions. So I, I think we can work with those. That's the thing to focus on. We don't actually know how far these are going to take us, but there, there are encouraging signs. And it's really, I wouldn't consider these no regret type investments because they come along, you know, there's multiple benefits along with the climate mitigation. So, you know, you can look things up, you know, growing a forest where there wasn't one before, let's say, replanting forests that have been cut down. A lot of work on coastal marine habitats is very important. Getting carbon out of the ocean and, and, and sequestering it while it's, is really important to do. The oceans absorb so many of our emissions. Mm-hmm. Farming methods that can increase the carbon content of soil, organic farming, more perennial systems, less tillage, organic fertilizers, biochar in tropical regions maybe. So these are many of the kind of techniques out there that are actually talked about by the, by the climate community. Those are the kind of things that we should be investing in and, and working to scale. I'll repeat something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, which is simplifying instead of complexifying, right? Mm-hmm. So it means when it comes to technology, it's, it's low tech, mm-hmm. right? It's shorter supply chains. It's distributed energy and food production, less industrialization, generally speaking. I mean, it's, it's ratcheting 
all of this industrialization and complexity down to one, be more resilient if we're facing a lot of the the cracks in the system that you talked about, Jason, but also to, to reduce the load that we have in terms of either replacing fossil fuels or in terms of thinking about sequestration or somehow removing carbon from, from the atmosphere. Yeah, and a final do the opposite. If you're talking about transformational change, then you really need to be looking at how do we consume less. So that's degrowth, right? We're, we're talking about uh, learn about it, promote the concept, you know, talk about it with, with anybody that you can. The idea is to shrink our economy down to a size that's commensurate with what the ecosystems will support, that will meet our needs without undermining the life support systems of the planet. And there's actually been some little promising bits. I don't know. Earlier, Jason, I think you said 10% of the discussion is on. <laughs> I, I think that's that's a little um, Higher. optimistic, okay. probably. But, <laughs> but, there, but it, it is coming up. The most recent IPCC report on, on climate, you know, you, you mentioned like all the modeling and everything has these negative emission technologies. And I'm not talking about the ones that you just mentioned with right. forestation. Yeah, or, some of those, yeah. We're talking about, well, but yeah. they really do focus on the tech technologies. But there were parts of that report where they said, oh, we got to work on how much we're demanding. We've mm-hmm. got to actually have less energy and material and uh, and mention the word degrowth for the first time in one of those reports. Yeah, I think it, in the perspective of maybe we should consider this, you know, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, I think those institutions are going to be latecomers. They always are latecomers, especially in an international body like that where you have to get consensus from from a lot of people. That was, a, I think, actually a pretty big deal that they could get language like that through that process. Yeah. And a lot of it's it's coming from the fact that like degrowth, particularly in Europe and other places, it is really, I think, on the ascent. And people like Jason Hickel, who we know, and others, Kate Rayworth, have been asked to, to speak to national governments, city governments, you know, like it, it's it's starting to get out there. So you're um, saying, is, is it okay for them for degrowth to be growing? Growing? <laughs> I don't know, man. This is one of those like paradoxes. I just hypocrites. I, you know what I think I want to do right now? Head out to the forest down there, and I haven't seen this month. I know is over there. Okay, pair of red tits and red breasted saps. Oh, I think you're talking about those red uh, cattle. What what was the? (laughs) I can't. I don't know. I'm just stuck on growth for degrowth. That's our show. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard and you want others to consider these issues, then please share Crazy Town with your friends. Hit that share button in your podcast app or just tell them face to face. Maybe you can start some much needed conversations and do some things together to get us out of Crazy Town. Thanks again for listening and sharing. Based on ground-shattering breakthroughs from scientists at the University of West Virginia, Recolate is the first and only coal-to-air-to-coal technology. We can now imagine a sustainable economy based on mining coal, burning coal, sucking carbon dioxide out of the air, turning it back into coal, reburying the coal, and mining it again. The mountains of West Virginia can now be rebuilt and destroyed over and over again, creating thousands of eternal Sisyphean jobs Recolate. 
because it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of industrial civilization. Recolate! Crazy town. Da, 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 da. Crazy town.